Uh, I thought, let me start out like this. Um, how many of you are married? Just raise your hand if you're married. Uh, those online, I can't see you, but you can see me. Raise your hand if you're married. Uh, men, men, there's something that is universal in every marriage. There's a universal sign that your wife gives, and you know it's time to run and hide. It, it, it goes the other way, too. Uh, ladies, you know oftentimes there's something similar with uh, your husband that you know when you cross that line, there's going to be a conversation coming up. There, you know it. It goes, it goes beyond just marriage. How many of you, how many of you have parents? Every one of us, we have parents. Every one of us have parents. And if you, you, you kids in here today, you kids watching online, you know there's something that your parents do. And as soon as they do it, you're like, oh, darn it, I'm in trouble. I'm going to get it. Right? You know this is true. What is it? The look. I don't know what, I, I can't even do the look. I'm too much of a goofball. But you know, like, your spouse has a look. And as soon as you see that look, it's like, oh, gosh, I'm in trouble. Run and hide. Do not make eye contact. Do not pass go. Do not collect 200. It is not good. I'll say for me, I actually am thankful for the look. I'm thankful for the look uh, because that look from my spouse has saved me from digging myself deeper into a hole. And that look also gives me time before we're alone to figure out how I'm going to apologize for what I just did. So the look, it's great. Listen, how many of you wish there was something like this with God? When you look at your relationship with God, your faith, how many of you wish there was something that God would give you that you would know I'm crossing a line that I shouldn't cross, I need to step back? Well, I mean, honestly, most of us think we have those things. Most of us think well, I know what makes me a good person, a good Christian, uh, someone that God would love. We, we might say things like this. You know, look how good I am. I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't go with girls who do. That makes me good in the sight of God. Or we look and we say, well, you know, I've been a Christian for 40 years, and I've been uh, in ministry and leadership for all this time. So that makes me mature with God. That makes me right with God. We might say, well, look how much I pray. We might say, uh, look at all these good things I do, and this shows that I'm a, a good Christian. Of course God's going to love me. Listen, I, 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 I point those things out. Those things are good. But oftentimes what we do is we look at those things and we think, that is the proof that I'm good with God. My heart is right. But how many times have we seen someone in church, a Christian, who does those right things, but somehow they just aren't right with God? What if God gave us something? Not a look, but what if God gave us something to expose the true condition of our heart, to expose whether or not we are, are truly putting our complete faith and trust in God and who he really is? Because the good, or maybe the scary news is, God has given us something like that. He's given us something that exposes the condition of our heart, that exposes whether or not we are, are putting our full faith and trust in God or not. You want to know what this is? Simply Grab your phone and pull up your bank statement. This is really simple and practical. Scripture says that how we manage our money, how we manage our resources, exposes what is ultimate in our heart. It exposes whether or not we have fully surrendered everything of who we are to God or not. In fact, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. 
Now, I recognize I'm a pastor, I'm at church, I'm talking about money. This makes for a very difficult conversation, an awkward conversation. Some of us have bad experiences in this regard. And I want to just give my preface in, I'm not speaking on this topic because I want to. I'm speaking on this topic because our, uh, how we manage money has a direct relationship to our discipleship, to, to our maturity in Christ. In fact, when you're looking at the Bible, there are more verses dealing on uh, money than there is dealing with heaven and hell combined. There are uh, about 300 verses that talk about prayer. There's about 500 verses in the Bible that talk about, uh, uh, about faith. And there's over 2,000 verses that talk about money and resources and wealth and possessions. In fact, Jesus, as Jesus was teaching, Jesus taught 38 parables in the gospel accounts. 16 of those are related to money. And so, how we manage our resources has a direct impact on our faith and on our maturity. And if, if God made it a priority, I feel like us in a church should make it a priority as well. This is one of the benefits of, of teaching through a, a book of the Bible. Is as we teach through the book of the Bible, we don't skirt around the hard issues. We say, this is what God has written to us. This is what we're going to teach. So the past couple of weeks, we've been going through a series in the book of Malachi, which is basically a series of questions from the people of God to God. Uh, they're struggling. Economically, things were bad in their situation. They're struggling economically. Politically, they'd lost their power. They'd lost their influence in the world. Uh, uh, spiritually, they were morally, they were on a decline. Things were struggling. As they're just struggling in their faith. They're struggling in general. They, their faith had grown lukewarm at best. They'd become indifferent to the things of God, kind of going through the motions, no longer wholehearted. And so this book is a series of, of questions where God is trying to probe into their heart to say, hey, I want you to come back into a right relationship with me. I want you to be wholehearted and passionate in your devotion to God. And today, today, God's going to deal with money. He's going to deal with how the people of God were, were giving towards him. And he's not just going to accuse them of being unfaithful, but he does something very drastic. He actually uh, says, you guys are robbing me. You've robbed God. And he's going to give them an opportunity to repent. So we're going to just jump into this text. Before we, before we look at this text, I think one of the things I want you to notice is God is going to talk about, before he talks about money, he's going to talk about worship. Before God gets to the point of dealing with, with money, he's going to talk about worship. Worship is simply our response to the goodness and the graciousness and the generosity of God. That's what worship is. When we look at how good God has been to us, when we see how gracious God has been, when we see how generous God is, worship is what we give back to God. We worship God with our obedience. We worship with our actions. And part of the way that we worship is with our resources. So God is going to start dealing with this conversation. And he's going to start with, with worship because our generosity or our lack of generosity is primarily a worship issue. So here's what he says, verse 6. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. This tells us about the character of God. This is saying, this is who God is. He doesn't change, which means God is faithful, which means God is constant, which means we can count on God. We don't have to worry if God's going to change his mind. When he says something, when he says, I love you, I will never leave you nor forsake you, we don't have to doubt that. We know that God does not change. So when he makes a promise, he keeps it. 
And because of that, it's even better. He says, therefore, you, the children of Jacob, the people of God, are not consumed. That right there is the grace, the mercy, and the generosity of God. Every one of us here today, whether in person or online, every one of us are sinners. We are sinners and we are, are guilty before God. And what we deserve because of our sin, we deserve the wrath of God. But God, in his mercy, he has chosen us. He has sent his son Jesus to the cross in our place to forgive us our sin so that we wouldn't have to be destroyed. So that we would be his children and that he would be our God and we'd have this relationship with God and we would get to be with him forever. And so that's the, that's the, the background for this whole text. Because God is unchangeable, because God loves us when we don't deserve it, he's going to call the people of God back to wholehearted worship. He says in verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I love that because that verse is a glimpse into the heart of God. What God wants, what God wants most of all, it's not our money. He wants a relationship with us. He wants this, this, this close, intimate, passionate relationship between us and God, where he's our God and, and we're his children. The problem is, the problem is they've wandered away. And they don't even see it. Look at their response. After God says, I want you to return to me so I can return to you, they say, but how shall we return? Now this question is a lot like the other questions in the book where it's not quite a question. It's more of an accusation. They're kind of like, uh, really God? What are you talking about? Like, why do we need to return to you? Look, God, we still show up to church on Sundays. We still, uh, we still go through the motions. We're still doing these things. Why, God, would you say that we need to return to you? I mean, here's the people of God. They're looking at themselves, and they've been in this hard season of life. Remember, they're struggling. They're struggling economically. They're struggling personally. They're struggling in all these different areas. And they're kind of looking at the, around, and they're like, you know, in light of the circumstances, I'm doing okay. In light of all that's happening around me, like, I'm really, I'm not that bad of a person. Like, I might be not as passionate as I once was, but, man, who can blame me, right? And then they start looking around, and we're like, well, I'm doing better than that person, doing better than that person. I, I'm actually not that bad. I'm doing really pretty good. God should be lucky and happy to have me on his team. This is where, again, when we approach the Bible, we don't want to read the Bible historically, where it tells us about what other people, how they used to interact with God, but we want to read the Bible humbly and personally where when we read it humbly and personally every one of us in that same situation where we have turned aside from god we've turned away from god and done things our own way and some of us some of us even here today listening today are like the the people in malachi's day it's a hard season of life life is difficult and they look at all that's going on they're like you know what i guess i'm not really that bad i guess i'm not doing that bad i'm no I'm not doing as good as I should, but I'm doing better than some people. So therefore, I'm all right. Right? I I'm okay. They don't recognize their need to return to God. And so God wants to make it very clear to them, hey, you do need to return to me. And so in case they didn't understand that, he has this very practical example of how they turned away from God and how they need to repent. This is what he says in verse 8. He says, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me. That sounds like a pretty serious accusation right there. Because this word rob, it doesn't mean like, like to embezzle, 
It doesn't mean to do like a Ponzi scheme. It literally means to take by force. Kind of carries this idea of, of, of like you got, you got mobbed. Mobbed? That's the wrong word. You got something bad happened to you. Mugged. Mugged. It was a three-letter word. It was just escaping me. You got mugged. <laughs> I do speak for a living. Oh, this is great. Uh, and so the people, God says, you have, you have robbed me. And the people of God are like, what are you talking about? How have we robbed you? We haven't, we haven't mugged you. We haven't taken it forcibly. This is ridiculous. And God's response is, you have robbed me in your tithes and your offerings. The word tithe itself simply means 10%. 10%. What's interesting, again, if we understand the context, this is a group of people who are struggling financially. This is a poor group of people. If anybody had an excuse for not being faithful in their tithes and offerings, it would have been the people on Malachi's day. Yet God charges them and says, you have robbed me. You have failed to give me what I deserve. You failed to display your trust and your loyalty to me. You failed to put me first in your life. And by doing that, you have actually robbed from God. Let me just pause right here and give us a little background on tithing. Uh, the idea of tithing is that God made everything on the earth. God made everything on the earth, in the earth. Everything belongs to him. And so over and over again in scripture, we see this idea uh, that all of our resources, our time, our talents, our, our treasure, our resources, everything we have ultimately don't belong to us. They belong to God. And we have become stewards of what God gives us. We steward and manage what God has given to us. Ultimately, everything belongs to God. And so as stewards and managers of what God's given us, God said, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I'm going I'm to let you manage all this stuff. The deal is you give 10% back to me and you keep the 90%. Again, God who owns everything says, here's the deal. You keep 90, you give me back 10 now, honestly, that's a pretty generous deal, right? Because whose is it in the first place? It's not ours. It's God's. And so you could, you could picture it like this. Imagine, imagine that you owned a, a piece of land. You owned 100 acres somewhere, and you decide, I'm going to rent that out to a farmer. The farmer, you have to give me 10% of whatever you proceed off your crops. That's kind of the way it works. So imagine, imagine you've got farmer Jacob. He's got the overalls. A uh, piece of straw coming out of his mouth. You can just picture it. I, I can picture it. Now, when farmer Jacob goes to harvest everything, if he doesn't give you your 10%, that's robbing you. He's taking from you what belongs to you. You made a deal with him and said, listen, you can have this. You can, you can farm this land, but you've got to give me this 10% back. And this is what the people of God are doing. God said, I'm giving this to you, and the deal is you give me 10% back. But when they don't give the 10% back, God says, you have robbed me. The problem, the problem with people in Malachi's day is the same problem we have in our day and age. Where we look at all of our resources, all that we have, and we think it's ours. We think we're entitled to it. Well, look at all the stuff. I earned it. I worked for it. I am the one that made all of this happen. This is my business. This is my paycheck. This is my future. This is my retirement. This is my money. And every time we say this is mine, we refuse to, to recognize that all we have comes from God. Everything we've been given is a gift from God. 
that he lets us put in charge, that he lets us manage and steward. And when we, when we no longer view everything we have as being from God, it puts us at odds with him. It puts us at odds with him. We're essentially we're saying, God, I recognize, but I'm taking this from you. I'm, I'm, I'm robbing you of it. Again, one of, the objections, one of the objections that the people of God could use in that day, well, since we're, we're poor, we don't have a lot of money, we'll just tithe with our time. And that counts, right? That counts. Well, that's a good thing. God wants you to give your time. God wants us to worship with, with all of ourselves, including our time. But that doesn't mean that the people of God are off the hook financially. God still accuses these people who are struggling financially of robbing God because they have not been faithful in their giving to him. And look what happens because they've robbed God. Verse 9. Verse 9 says, You've, uh, You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. God says, hey, maybe one of the reasons why things are so hard for you, one of the reasons why you're struggling so bad is because you are stealing from me. And because you're stealing from me, you now have a curse upon you. What's the curse? Well, again, back in Malachi's day, they were an agricultural, uh, agricultural economy. Verse 11 actually talks about the devourer. And so you have this idea that maybe, maybe, uh, maybe their, their farmlands had a locust who come and destroy the crops. Maybe there was a lack of rain that was causing the crops to dry out. Whatever it is, there was a curse, something that was causing their, their farmlands not to produce what it should. And we hear this and we're like, a curse? Well, that sounds harsh. Why would God do that? Why would God give a curse to his people? Think about it this way. Let's imagine, let's imagine you've got some money, you've got however much money, and you decide you're going to invest in a partner. So maybe you look and you're like, hey, Farmer Jacob, I'm going to invest in you. Here's some money. Uh, now, imagine if Farmer Jacob begins to steal that money. You're not going to invest any more in Farmer Jacob, not until that, that poor Farmer Jacob becomes more honest and ethical and trustworthy and stops stealing from you. That's kind of the idea of what's happening with the people of God. God says, listen, if you're not going to honor me with this, I'm not going to continue to bless you. I'm going to cause it for you to struggle until you get this right. Again, let's just recognize where the people of God are. The people of God are a little bit disillusioned with him. They don't, they don't care about the word of God. They don't appreciate the fact that uh, they, everything they enjoy ultimately belongs to God. They've forgotten the truth of God, the truth of God that says God loves us. God has given us grace and compassion. God has been generous to us. God has made these beautiful promises to us that we can trust and, and know that he is with us. Know that God will satisfy us. And so their lack of giving exposes their heart. Exposes, exposes their lack of worship. Exposes you are not loving God with all of yourself. And God doesn't sugarcoat it. God doesn't sugarcoat it and say, well, you guys are struggling. You guys are, you know, having a difficult time. No, he actually says, you are robbing me. And because of that, your suffering continues. The curse is there. You reap what you sow. Now, this is where I want us to remember the book of Malachi. The theme for this book is the love of God. That's what God said in verse 2. I've always loved you. I love you today. I will love you tomorrow. I will always love you in the future. And because of that, God is calling them to repentance. This is what he says in verse 10. God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. 
and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. And I will rebuke the devourer so that I will no longer destroy the fruits of your soil. And the vine of your field shall not fail to bear fruit, says the Lord of hosts. See, God gives them, in the midst of this accusation of them robbing God, God gives them this beautiful promise. And what God says, listen, if you repent, if you return fully to me, if you repent of robbing to me and start being faithful in your giving, God said, I will reverse that curse upon you. And your land will once again produce fruit. He says, I will bless you. In fact, one of the things he says is he says, you can test me on this. Normally, the Bible tells us it's not good to test God. But here what God is saying is, listen, you can trust me in this promise. You can trust me that if you are faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. And I will bless you in this regard. The truth about blessings, sometimes we think, well, blessings come because I work really hard. I'm blessed because of how uh, smart I am. I'm blessed because I had the right opportunities. No, blessings come from God. In fact, uh, Jesus, he had a half-brother named James. And James said, every good and perfect gift comes from above. The blessings we have are not because we're so worthy and because we're so great and we make them happen on our own. Our blessings come as a gift from God. And what God is saying, I'm not going to bless you for just going through the motions in your worship. I'm not going to bless you for being lukewarm. I'm not going to bless you for worshiping me part-time here, but then worshiping something else over here. The blessing comes when we acknowledge that we've turned away from God. When we make the steps to return to him wholeheartedly, and that includes making right our giving to God. Then he says in verse 12, I love this. God says, then all nations shall call you blessed, and you'll be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. I love what happens when we are generous to God. God said that the promise he made to Abraham way back in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, that all nations will be blessed. God just said when we are generous to him, we're faithful in that generosity, that would be fulfilled. Malachi is saying when you are obedient and you're giving to God, God will bring the fulfillment of that promise. That our giving, how we are faithful to God with our finances, is a witness to the world. That God's name would become great because of how faithful we are to God. That the world will be able to look at the way that Christians give or how they don't give. But they, they could look at the people of God and see God's love on them. They could see God's blessing on them. In fact, in the book of, of Acts, Acts, Acts chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 6, you see this three different times. Where even though the people of God in the New Testament were poor, they looked out for one another. They gave what they had and shared with one another. And what happened was the world looked on. The world saw God's love on them. He saw God's blessing on them. And it says that the world held Christians in high esteem. And many people were converted to the faith. Why? Because of how the Christians were faithful in their giving to God and to one another. Listen, I admit we come to a passage like this. And it's incredibly tough. It's incredibly awkward and hard. But if we're being honest, what God just said is our giving or our lack of giving exposes what we truly worship. Our giving exposes what we truly worship. 
doesn't matter what we post on social media. doesn't matter uh, the Bible verses we memorize. doesn't matter how many times we come to church and how many times we worship God. Those things are great. But your giving truly exposes whether you are putting your faith and trust in God or whether you're putting your faith and trust in something else. Your giving exposes whether God is truly number one in your life. I want to I wanna have two little qualifications to this passage because I know there's going to be some objections whenever we start talking about uh, things like this. Number one, I want to say that being, uh, to be blessed does not mean to be rich. To be blessed does not mean to be rich. Again, we saw that incredible promise where God said, if you are, are faithful uh, to God with your generosity, God says, I will bless you. Uh, that's a promise. That's a promise from Scripture. The problem is there are some pastors, some churches, who have taken that promise and abused it. They've taken it and abused it to mean what it doesn't mean to, to mean. With this idea that if you give to God, he'll make you rich. You give to God, you sow a seed of faith, and God will return ten times what you give. So you give God a thousand, and you get ten thousand in return. You give God, you give God ten thousand, you'll get a million in return. But this is not what God is saying. Listen, God knows your heart. And for some of us, we don't really love God, we love money. And we try and use God to get more of it. If we are faithful to God, that does not mean we're going to be rich. To be blessed does not mean to be rich. To be blessed means that we are in an enviable position from receiving God's favor. To be blessed means we have experienced the fullness of life in the presence of God. Which means to be blessed means we're going to be provided for. We're going to be assured of our relationship with God. We're going to experience that peace that passes all understanding. Whether we're rich or poor, God will give us this blessing, this peace that comes over us. In fact, I'll tell you how it's worked out in, in our marriage, in our life. Uh, when my wife and I, Samantha, when we were younger, we had, I don't know, a couple of kids, uh, two kids, and we lived in this tiny two-bedroom duplex. This thing was tiny. I worked at the state patrol. Samantha stayed home with the kids. Uh, money, money was tight, like, because we had no money was basically what it was. Like, our favorite day, our favorite day was on Memorial Day because I knew my father-in-law was going to barbecue ribs, and we'd come over, and that'd be so much better than the top ramen that we were used to. That's just the way it was back in those days. So back then, Sam did the budget. She's always done the budget. She's better with the finances than I am. I'll admit that. And, and, and she's doing the budget, and she says, hey, Kevin, Kevin, I think we need to start giving to the church. And I'm like, what, 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 how? See, this is where I am so thankful that I've got a godly wife. Like, that's a great thing to have. I said, yeah, Kevin, I think we need to start tithing to the church. I said, well, I don't know how we're going to do this. But we did it. And this crazy thing where it just seemed like God continued to provide. He continued to provide. And it came to climax a couple of years later. It came to a climax. We had more kids. We, we, it was crazy. Like, we started two. We ended up having five. I don't know where it came from. They just kept coming. And uh, we had five kids. And I'm working at Madison House. And I took, actually, a pay cut to go work in ministry. And the car that I had, the car that was getting me to work every day, it blew up on me. I don't know what it was. Mechanic says something mechanically, and I don't know. I couldn't under interpret it. Like, it's going to cost you $1,500 to fix this. And we're like, well, would you take 
a Taco Bell coupon because that's pretty much all we got. We got nothing. And I remember we're kind of freaking out, and I'm like, why have we given all this money to the church? We could have had money in savings. We could have taken care of this. And I remember my, my boss called me. My boss called me from work and said, hey, hey I want to give you this car. I want to give you this car. I know you guys are struggling. The car broke down. It wasn't a fancy car. It, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't a Lamborghini or anything exciting. But it was a car that got me from point A to point B for several years. Listen, you don't give to God to get something from him. God knows your heart. That's not the way it works. But when we see how great God has been to us, we're faithful to give to him. Man, I can't tell you how many blessings that God will put in your life. How you experience the favor of God. The peace of God that passes all understanding. In ways you wouldn't imagine it until you actually get out there and do it. Matthew 6, again, Jesus, when he's talking about this, he says, seek first the kingdom of God, which includes our finances. Seek first the kingdom of God with our money and let God take care of the details. Second thing I want to address is, well, how much are Christians supposed to give, right? The Old Testament, they had the law that required you to give a 10% tithe. That was the expected. But actually, the Old Testament goes further than that. You gave 10% to the local church. You also were supposed to give 10% of your income to the festivals that they would celebrate together. And every three years, you gave an additional 10%, that money that would go towards uh, meeting the needs of the poor. So in the Old Testament, the actual tithe equaled about 23% of your annual income that would go to God. Now, I know we get to the New Testament, we're in the New, new Covenant, and there's an objection. Well, the Old Testament doesn't tell, or the New Testament doesn't tell us to tithe. Nowhere does the, does the New Testament say you have to tithe 10%. In fact, the only time in the New Testament that you see the word tithe, it's in relation to the Pharisees, where Jesus use it, uses it in a very negative way. He said, you tithe your 10%, but your heart is far from me. He says, that's hypocrisy. While the New Testament is not specific about how much you're supposed to give, it speaks very clearly about money. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 is probably the longest New Testament passage that talks about giving. You are welcome to study that passage on your own. But here's three simple things about giving in the New Testament that God expects us as Christians. Number one, he expects it to be cheerful. We're to be a cheerful giver, which means we give with a, a glad heart. We're glad to be able to give to the things of God. Secondly, our giving is to be sacrificial. See, I think it's, a purpose. it's purposeful that God doesn't give us an amount. Because if he gave us an amount, man, those that are struggling financially would have a hard time meeting it. And those that are doing well financially would have, it'd be, without batting an eye, easy for them to do. God says we're to give sacrificially. Which means if you, are, if you have less resources, that sacrifice is going to look different than somebody who's got more resources. Our giving should be sacrificial, which means we should feel it. Thirdly, our giving is to be regular, which means it's not, just, it's not just like, oh, I feel guilty this week, I should give a little bit of money, but no, our giving should actually be regular. Three things that should dictate our giving. Are you cheerful in your giving? Are you sacrificial in giving? Are you regular in your giving? And here's, those are my qualifications. Here's, a, here's the application. Where do we go with this from here? Number one, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to assess your giving. 
I want you to look back at this past year, 2020, as unique as a year as it has been. Because your giving is your autobiography. Your giving and how you spend your money is your autobiography. Who you are, what you value, is most clearly seen in how you spend your money. So look at your budget this past year. And what is your money saying your autobiography is? What does your budget say what you value and, how, and what is most important to you? See, the difference between a spoken value and an actual value is the action that is around it. So you might say, you might say, well, I value my family above all. I, I value my family. But then you look at your budget, and there's more money spent on hobbies than your family, then you know what you truly value. It tells you the truth of what is going on in your heart and in your life. This is where if we claim, God, you're my number one in my life. God, you're my top priority above everything else. Does your budget actually reflect that? Do you actually trust God to provide for you? Do you trust him when he said that promise? Test me. Test me and see if I do not open the floodgates of heaven and provide for you. Do you trust God to provide? Are you spending more of your resources investing into your future than you are investing into the things of God, knowing that God will provide for you? I am thankful that we are a generous church. We're a generous church, and I am so thankful for that. But I'll be honest, this is probably a hard word for some of us in here today. Because if we're going to be honest, we've been robbing God. We've been stealing from God. But the good news is that God loves you. God doesn't change. God has never stopped loving you. And in love, today, God is calling you to repentance. He's calling you not to trust. Uh, he's, calling, he's calling you to acknowledge that you have not been trusting God with your finances. He's giving you an opportunity today to make a decision to repent and turn back towards him. To choose to honor him with your resources. Let me throw this out. If you're in financial problems, if you're finding yourself in financial difficulty, listen, reach out to us. There's ways that we can help. There's resources we can provide you with. You want knowledge on how to, how to budget, how to do those things. There's books, there's classes, there's opportunities for us to walk through some of that with you. Let us meet your needs in that way. Number one, would you assess your giving this past year? What does your giving say about your faith? Number two, maybe for some of you, today you need to make a decision to take the tithing challenge. Take that challenge to put God to the test. God just said, listen, if you tithe, test me in that. So maybe for you, maybe it's taking the tithing test. Were you going to Make a commitment for the next three months, December, January, and February. God, I'm going to give you 10%. I'm going to trust you in that and see and test God. See if he does not bless you. See if he does not open the floodgates of heaven and fill your home with peace and provision. Three months. Three months. Give like you've never given before. You come to March, you can stop if you want. My guess is you're not going to want to. My guess is you're going to see God's hand all over. And you're going to be like, hey, I'm going to continue doing this. I believe that God wants to honor and bless those who are faithful to him. And let me just add this. As a church, as we head into 
December, as we head into the Christmas season, I want to invite you to give above and beyond your regular tithes and offerings to the church. As you think about Christmas, would you consider giving restoration a, a Christmas gift? 2020 has been a year of uncertainty with everything that we have faced with the pandemic and with uh, the election and these different things. And as a church, we want to finish 2020 strong. That would help us be prepared financially for 2021. We want to be able to, as a church, begin to prioritize setting some money aside where we can uh, prepare for the future for what God would open doors for us with facilities, facilities and different things. So as you consider the end of the year, would you consider making a year-end gift to, to Restoration Church? And number three, point three of application. Would you be willing to worship God with every part of you? Again, I come back to this is the heart of this whole passage. God's not primarily concerned about your money. He wants your heart. He wants your worship. So will you worship God? Will you honor God? Would you submit to God with every part of your life? With your time? With your talents? With your relationships? Would you honor God with your job? And would you honor God with your finances? That's what God wants. That's what God is pleading with us today. Return to me. I want that wholehearted relationship with you. Let's pray.